episode of MFA Writers. In the last couple of weeks, we've received a bunch of messages from listeners via email and social media, letting us know how helpful the podcast was this application cycle. It really makes me so happy to know that the podcast is helping. So I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you all so much for listening and for reaching out with your kind words. It means a lot. If you want to get a hold of us, you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Suli Holum. Suli is a Philadelphia-based director, performer, choreographer, and playwright who recently graduated with an MFA in dramatic writing from Goddard College in Vermont, where she was the recipient of the 2020 Engaged Artist Award. She's a member of the Wilma Theater's Hot House Company, a founding member of Pig Iron Theater Company, and co-artistic director of Stein Hollum Projects. Her work includes Drama Desk-nominated Chimera and The Wholehearted. She's the recipient of a Drama Desk Award, a TCG Fox Resident Actor Fellowship, a Barrymore Award, an Independence Fellowship, and NEFA Touring Grant. Credits at the Wilma include Romeo and Juliet, Dance Nation, and Minor Character, and you can also catch her on HBO's Mayor of Easttown. Today, she is going to read a monologue from her unpublished play, Laylee Dove Stanton Outruns Them All. So Laylee Dove Stanton Outruns Them All is a story of an indigenous woman, a member of the three affiliated tribes, who is searching for her lost child. It's her encounter um, with a group of settlers. It's also a reckoning about land and, and water and oil. We are in a double wide trailer at the edge of a family farm in North Dakota, now defunct. The bedroom door opens. In shuffles Jason's mom slash North Dakota the same middle-aged white woman as before. She's now half-dressed in an old pageant gown, holding a Miss North Dakota sash. Her wig is askew, revealing her bald head and the tail end of a Frankenstein gash held together with surgical staples. She's humming and practicing dance moves. She crosses into the room and stands, silent, looking out as if she's searching for something just beyond her reach. She clutches a Bible to her chest. That snake, he said to Eve, psst, he said, psst, you're only getting half the story. Don't you want to know everything? So she ate of that fruit. 
and then she knew it all. Got them both kicked right out of paradise. And men got selective memories. You ever notice that? That's from Adam. Like most men, Adam was able to forget all he knew. Blank slate, like most men. Just make a mess of everything, leave it to someone else to clean up. They do it easy, but not women. Oh, no. We have to bear the burden of cleaning up their messes. and But also keeping our mouths shut and keeping it to ourselves and having faith that the good Lord in his infinite wisdom knows even more. It's a struggle. Lord knows. And God made men stronger and women smarter. Explain that. You can't. God only knows. I just feel like I can see things, Lord. Like I know. But nobody's got the whole picture. It'd be too much, even for Eve. Certainly for Adam. But even for Eve. But I can see things. I can see that men and women are like oil and water. Used to be water was for raising crops and raising animals and raising families, but the water was wild and it needed to be harnessed and tamed so it wouldn't rise up every spring and flood our farms. The men had tried so hard to prove up, to prove that they were in charge, had dominion, were in control of destiny. They nicknamed the river Old Muddy and they chopped her up into pieces with the main stem dams and harnessed her power to bring us out of the dark. Electric. And we spread. Our towns grew and our families grew and our farms grew and that was progress and they were so proud of themselves but the men had more to prove. When they first found the oil, it was just a well here and there, you know, and you drill it and be done. So there was the life of the farm still and the crops and the animals and the kids. And there was just the little spots here and there where nothing could grow, where the oil would flow. But the men wanted more. So they figured out how to use the water to get to the oil. Just mix it with poison and sand and blast it into the bedrock. The water said, no, you don't get to do this. Force your way in where you don't belong. And the men said, that's what you think. Water said, you're poisoning the well. This is going to hurt you. This is going to kill us all. Men said, shut the fuck up and do what I tell you. You think I can't get away with this, but I can and I'll prove it. I used to look out that window over there and watch the sunset. Yeah. Every evening at sunset, I'd pick up the phone and I'd ring my friend Darlene and we'd gossip about everything we knew as we watched the sun setting over our fields. And now there's a flare burning out there night and day so that I have to draw the blackout curtains against it. And Darlene sold the farm and moved to Cincinnati and I'm left all alone with a dead field in flames. And I've got this cancer in my brain. I feel too young to die, but what do I know? What do I know? It's in there, cancer seeping in the cracks, drowning out my sense, my good sense. Well, pretty soon, I'll be like Adam, a clean slate. I can't wait.
Tuli, that was awesome. Thank you so much for reading that. Thanks for letting me read it. <laughs> oh, that, was so, that was so fun. We've only had a couple of theater, like like stage writers on the uh, the show before, but both times I'm just like <laughs> completely blown away by the readings. So good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was great. Um, so my first question is about you know, your writing process a little bit, because in general, writing is thought of as like this solitary art form, but that's not always the case for you. As a playwright, you do a lot of what they call devised work. And so for those of us who are novices to dramatic writing, first, could you tell us what is devised theater? Yeah, totally. So, so devised, um, is, (laughs) it's a little bit of a, a, a term, um, that describes what something is not, <laughs> right? Because it's, because there can be so many, um, there's so many approaches that fall under the term devised. Um, but it's basically what you just laid out, which is to say that, um, theater is an art form. It's not a literary form mm. theater. Right? right. And a script, what, whatever ends up on the page is a blueprint for, for a time-based event. And so a lot of times um, the way that a devising process unfolds is that a writer is in the room bearing witness to proposals that um, that performers are making in real time um, and then receiving that and then maybe going off and shaping it and then handing it back in this kind of iterative sort of conversation. And sometimes um, the that writer is um, instigating, right? So like, offering writing that then launches export like on your feet explorations and then learning that way. Um, that's a, that's a process that I did um, for many years with um, a playwright named Deborah Stein, where I was the primarily the performer and she was primarily a writer, but you know, I also write and she's a great director and, you know, so, so it, the pieces kind of came into being um, in this like back and forth conversation between on your feet creating and, and the sitting down and writing in your chamber kind of writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I always bring that ethos into all of my writing. Um, I'm often commissioned, like, um, if there's a history or there's a community that holds, that holds story and, and they're trying to figure out how to translate that into, into a live theater piece, um, then I'll be brought in as the playwright who is being asked to like to, to hold and amplify yeah. um, the stories as opposed to me coming up with an idea um, all alone. So when you have written plays or any writing really where you have uh, been able to work on your own, where you've come up with an idea and you've written the story on your own. Yeah. How does that compare? Like, how, how do you find yourself approaching the story differently, knowing that you have full control over it versus knowing that you're going to have to enter into this collaborative process at some point? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I actually, um, grad school was my chance to really explore that. I was like, what, what, I wonder what that process would be for me. And, and, and even that I think is a great example of how this ethos, it's just, is it's, it's a constant for me. Like I'll never leave it. <laughs> it's just, it's like why I make work. Like I make work to be in conversation. So, yeah. um, 
so for, for that, this, what I just read, Laylee Dove Stanton outruns them all began, um, as a research trip where I did, where I interviewed folks. I started just interviewing and gathering, gathering recordings, um, and then also doing my own independent research. And I was really particularly interested in the experiences of women living and working in the oil fields out, out in North Dakota. And, um, and then that evolved into conversations with, um, members of the three affiliated tribes of the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, um, which is in the same area um, as the settler towns where I was interviewing folks. And initially I explored that material as a solo performance. Um, and, and I, and that was like a, an experiment for me to see how I would meet the material. And it turned out that it, that it was a story that was more than one body could hold. And it, and it also was a story that I felt I needed to um, fictionalize in in order to really get at the heart of what I wanted to say, you know, or what what I had learned um, through my own encounters. Um, I often think of writing, of playwriting, as um, retracing my own steps, right, or or creating a map for an audience to go on a journey that I've been on. And, um, you know, not to be prescriptive about, about what they learn from going on that journey, but, but really trying to give them that path towards some kind of learning that I've undergone personally. Um, and, uh, I also think it's really, for me in my, in my writing, it's really important not to have all the answers, but, but to ask urgent questions. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about this idea of doing, you said you did interviews and you did like some research on this specific topic before you started writing uh, that play. Is that something that you normally do? Are you doing a lot of background uh, research? And does the research usually come before the idea for the play? Or or is it sometimes that that you come up with an idea and then you do the research or that you start doing research and ideas come from that research? The question that Susan Laurie Parks poses, who's an amazing playwright, that... David Henry Huang poses before he starts writing a play is why is it a play? Like, like what is it about this story that must be live performance? Right. Um, and, and that's like, it's this conceptual question. Um, and, and so I sort of sit with that for a while, like, like what at the seed of this, of this content is, is, is inherently um, theatrical and requires a back and forth between, you know, the audience and the performers in real time. And often for me, that is because the story that I want to tell is, is um, reflects um, untold history or underrepresented voices, um, a perspective that, that hasn't had a platform. Um, And, and that's the little engine for me. And then I, I do some sort of sketches, um, even improvisations, like testing out different voices, testing out different characters, testing out different relationships to the audience. And then I have to go back in and like do the deep dive research so that, so that whatever I'm doing is coming from a place of, of, um, authority and, and 
And I don't really trust individual authority. I believe in group authority. <laughs> so that's why I like to be um, in, in, in conversation, in collaboration. I, I really like to work with community members, people who have lived experience that I don't have, you know, if I'm writing across, across um, lived experience. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm never, I'm never all alone. So as someone who performs in your own work, do you make writing decisions ever based on your own strengths and weaknesses as a performer? <laughs> yeah, well, no, actually, like, so, um, so I'm a founding member of this company called Pig Iron Theater Company. And right. um, we, I, we started that the summer after my sophomore year of college, like when I was just a little, I was just a little, little kid. <laughs> um, and our ethos as young artists was that whatever the next project was had to be the next hardest thing. So I, so I actually like, I'm really drawn not to write towards my strengths, but to write towards the things that I, you know, like oh, yeah. what I wonder if I could do, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, right. like, yeah. So, um, and with this, like, like the excerpt that I just read, um, that's a big wonder that I have. And it still feels like it's still a, you know, it's a draft. It's still a little on the didactic edge of things. I feel like, I feel like that script right now is very, it's very much in need of some, um, workshop and just some time in the space to figure out like, okay, what of this language is really essential and necessary? And what can be, what of this can be taken care of, um, visually and, and physically. Um, but, it, but a big challenge of that material for me is, in that character, I'm grappling with my own settler identity and, and the legacy that I carry. And I have, you know, that character is inspired by women who trusted me, who I sat with, who, who I both identified with and also found very problematic, you know, and, uh, I'm really curious about embodying that and, and navigating it, um, in a way that's truthful and complicated and, yeah. Yeah. So that's a wonder I have. Yeah. That material. Well, some people come into MFA programs not really knowing yet the writer they want to be, while others come in with a specific project in mind that they want to work on. And I know that the latter was the case for you. Is this project that you just read from the one that you brought into the MFA to work on? Yeah, it is. And when I and when I entered the MFA, there was a version that was a solo performance that was both um, verbatim, verbatim interview text, and then also some memoir writing that I did about my about my trip. So I had that as a as a draft, but really as a seed of something. Um, like I knew I was going to depart from that that structure, and then I had just sort of started. I I just like challenged myself to sit down and start writing. So I had, you know, I was like thirty pages into a thing, but I didn't I, I didn't know yeah, where that was going, what form that would take. And, um, what was really exciting for me was, um, exploring genre. Like I, I ended up writing a crime drama. That's also a dark comedy, like kind of Fargo, you know, like definitely Coen brothers in blue, you know, it was yeah. like, it was wild. And, and the program was so great because, we chose what to read, you know, we, we created our own reading list, which had to be, you know, like 50 works. We had to read and annotate 50 works. And the annotation process was really 
to hone in on a single element of craft in whatever the the piece was, you know, an element of craft that we were curious about or something we, we might want to apply um, in our own work, either in the thesis or in, in other, you know, in other work. And um, I've always been really fascinated by structure. And then I, and then I also got exposed to hybrid, you know, worked with poet, you know, just like exposure to poets and like, <laughs> um, it was just a really beautiful deep dive into the intersection between form content and process. Was that your hope when deciding to attend an MFA that you would get exposure to some of those things and that that would yeah. help you finish the piece? Yeah. And, and also just grow and also just, um, deepen my, deepen my practice. I just, I, I wanted a, a deeper and more confident and more, um, self-directed, you know, self-guided practice. So, uh, you know, everything that I've said about loving being in conversation, like what challenge for me is like sitting down, you know, right. <laughs> sitting down to do the writing and, right. um, <laughs> and, 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 um, the writing and the rewriting and being in, being, being in conversation with my own work and really hearing my own voice as a, as a writer. Um, so yeah, that, that was a, that was my, my hope and my goal. And, and, and also it was a COVID decision, you know, it was, um, my whole industry, um, paused. There was right, no, right. there was no, um, live performance. And I had always been looking for that window of time where I could kind of retreat and focus in on my writing and call myself a writer more, more, you know what I mean? Like more, more intentionally. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I went in looking for. So what made Goddard the right fit for you? I was, I was looking for low, low res, um, options and, um, and I, and I also knew folks who had gone through, um, there's an interdisciplinary arts MFA, um, through Goddard, um, which a lot of people that I, that I know, um, had gone through and had, had great experiences. I also was an artist in residence at Goddard, like many moons ago. So I'd been to the campus and, um, I'd performed in the theater there and it's a funky place. <laughs> um, and, uh, I had great conversations with, um, with some of the faculty and, and Goddard is one of the very few low residency writing programs that offer a dramatic writing concentration. It's like, that's really rare. I actually think there's a good reason for that. Um, because, because writing for performance, like it makes sense that, that most playwriting MFA programs are on site because you, you got to be in relationship with actors and directors and be in space and around tables and reading things together. Like that's such a huge part of the art form. But for me personally, after working professionally in theater for, you know, almost 20 years and also being a, a working theater person, I knew that I could supplement what I was getting through Goddard with, um, with my own circle of collaborators and, and friends. So yeah. So that felt, it felt like the right fit for me and it had the flexibility that I needed um, for my family right. as well. So according to Goddard College's website, they launched the nation's first low residency master of fine arts and creative writing program in 1976. Today, they welcome writers in a variety of genres, including libretto, television writing, and the graphic novel, as well as creative nonfiction, poetry, 
dramatic writing, fiction, speculative fiction, and hybrid forms. So just like you said, a lot of flexibility there with um, the types of genres that they offer, which is pretty unique. I had some trouble finding information on their website, and I was hoping you could help us fill in some blanks. Sure. So how long is the program? Two years. Two years. Okay. And I saw that the residencies are like eight days long, and they take place at the start of each semester? Yes, that's right. So walk us through a typical residency and how it prepares you for the semester. (laughs) So what's interesting is like I had an atypical experience, right? Because it was Uh during COVID. So it was the first, um, the residencies were actually remote, one in January and one in in July. And we were um, divided into cohorts. And sometimes your cohort is all one genre and sometimes it's a mixed genre cohort and you have um, an advisor and you meet as a group um, every day of the residency. You have sessions with that group um, and that one advisor who is your advisor for the, for the entire semester. Um, and then outside of that daily meeting time, there are, workshops. So you, you can take, um, intensive workshops in any, any genre that you wish with any of the faculty that are participating in the residency and, you know, with any, with students, um, in, in any genre. And there's, you know, there's downtime to do a bunch of writing when you're doing your residency week, you have the, the required meeting of your, of your cohort with your advisor, um, every day. And then there are, um, required, genre intensive workshops that you need to go to, but everything else is, is choose your own adventure during residency. Well, I assume even now when it's not virtual anymore, it's probably the structure is pretty similar, except you get to go in person and hang out on the campus in Vermont. You said you've been to the campus. What's it like there? Um, it, it's, it's rural, super rural, remote, like, rough hewn kind of a situation. It's yeah. really, it's very beautiful. It's very Vermont. <laughs> and then there's also, there's two campuses. Um, there's a Vermont campus and then there's also um, one in, in Washington state. So there are two, there are two um, options and the faculty um, there's different faculty at the two, at the two locations. Okay. So you can actually apply for the MFA program at either one of those campuses. Yes. And, yeah. And then you would go to those uh either the Vermont one or the Washington state one, depending on which one you're in, you'd go there for the residencies. Yes, that's right. And, and you can sometimes folks, sometimes folks um, shifted like they, like they were, they started at Vermont, but then they, you know, there's like a faculty member in Washington that they really wanted to work with and they were able to, to shift. And also like part of what they discovered, what Goddard discovered during COVID um, was that the remote, learning was was a possibility and it increased the options for people participating in the program and so i think they're considering um maintaining that moving forward and um also that that folks can you know you can be the washington campus but you can participate um in the vermont residency so they're just like they're in the process of like expanding access right um, right for folks if they want to do more than just the one eight day um, residency. Cool. And when students are not in the residencies, it looks like they work on writing packets, which must be turned in four times per semester, according to the website. 
as part of the program and part of these packets, the students, like each semester, they make their own reading list of things that they want to read. And then they get to read those things throughout the semester and annotate them. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the entire program, you do a couple of shorter critical papers and one longer paper. Yeah, 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 yeah. And something that's like a, a little difficult for sometimes for folks to wrap their heads around is the difference between the critical papers and the annotations. Um, but faculty really like walks you through the annotation process is really craft based. So when you're annotating a work, you're really focusing on some aspect of craft, not a summary, right? And it's not a book report. <laughs> it, um, and it's not, it's not a critical analysis. It's not, um, there's no critical theory. You know, you're, it's, it's like, what is like, how is this writer using ellipses and why, what's the impact of the ellipses? <laughs> how might I use an ellipse? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, this is a very potent ellipses. I wonder yeah. <laughs> like, how I might apply ellipses in my work. Right. Um, yeah. Or like, uh, you know, like Lieutenant of Inishmore is a play that has a live cat on stage. Like, what's that about? You know, like what, <laughs> what's, you know, the craft of, of live animals on stage, um, right. you know, stuff like that. Whereas the critical papers are more, um, can have a little bit more critical theory involved. Um, I was able to like for me, I I really wanted to delve into questions around writing um, trans racially, transculturally, and my long critical paper was about. Um, I did an analysis of successive drafts of The Revenant, the screenplay for The Revenant, which was a really useful example of what can happen craft wise, um, to a script, um, when you use cultural consultants, but also I, you know, I, and I also turned to, there was a, um, this really awesome guide for writing across difference called writing the other, which is actually geared towards, um, like fantasy fiction and, and science fiction writing, like, but absolutely applied, um, to, to dramatic writing. So, um, yeah, so that was my long, that's like an example of what that yeah. long paper could be. And it's, it's great. Yeah. I think that's good to know. I think for some people who are pursuing the MFA and are really excited about workshopping their work, doing so much critical work might sound a little bit intimidating, but you told yeah. me that reading and annotating work ended up being one of your favorite parts of the program. You described it as a huge gift to you as a writer and something you will never stop doing. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, once you get going and you realize that every time you do one of those annotations, you've added another tool to your own toolkit as a writer, it's, it, it starts to feel really empowering for me the challenge of writing mystery, like how to write mystery, like what, what is it to write mystery or, or to set up the the circumstances in a way that keep the audience questioning. Right. And when yeah. we're, where do the payoffs land, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like where, what are the specific moves that the writer makes to yes. make this payoff? Right. Yes. Like identifying yes. that in the, the work. That sounds yes. interesting. Yeah. Yes. But then also like, like really surprising nuggets, like, really delving into the impact that um, in musical theater writing, right? Like 
you give um, a protagonist an I want song and the audience knowing what a character wants <laughs> immediately endears the, like yeah, suddenly right. they, they were, they're really invested. Right. So, right. so how you can apply that in any genre, right? It's, it's just this little insight into, um, into investing in that I want, or you can subvert, you can be subversive about that. Like for what I ended up doing in my play is I gave, I gave a character basically an I want aria monologue (laughs) pretty early on. And by the end of the play, you realize that she's not the good guy, (laughs) but, um, but, but using that little element of craft really allowed me to, to, to do that reversal. You know, it's, it's the nuts, it's really nuts and bolts stuff. Yeah. Which can sometimes go overlooked. So I think it's cool. It's a, it's a cool thing that they have you all do there. And then I also read that halfway through each semester, there's something called a virtual packet. What is that? So you, um, so you've got this advisor, you've got this faculty member who you send your work to. Um, and I should, I forgot to mention that every packet also has, has creative writing. So you're also sending pages. Okay. Right. You know, and, and I actually like, I think my first quarter I sent, I sent a bunch of writing on my play and I also sent a packet of poetry. You can share writing that's not um, in your, in your genre too. And then your advisor sends you um, a letter in response um, to everything that you've submitted and um, either asks you, you know, you may be asked to do rewrites on your, on your annotations or your critical work if they feel like you haven't gotten, gotten there yet. And then feedback on your, on your creative writing and some, and some instigations. And that's just a beautiful record. Cause you, by the end of the program, you have this, like, you can go back to any of those moments, right, you know, right. um, which is pretty cool. And then the virtual packet is you gather your questions, the things that you really feel like you need to talk to your advisor about in person. You can, you have email, you can have email back and forth with them, but this is a chance for you to do a phone call or a zoom or, um, it's just, it's the chance, um, midway through the semester to have a, to have a face to face because there are certain things that you need to, you know, you can't really do in a a written exchange. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, another thing that's unique about Goddard is its teaching practicum. Most low-res students leave without much, if any, teaching experience. So how does Goddard's practicum provide students with that experience? It's really special. Like it, it's um, the thing to know about Goddard is that it's a, it's a really good place for people who are self-motivated and, and maybe, you know, people who tend to kind of bristle at too much structure. Okay. (laughs) Um, so, but, but it also can sometimes feel like, Oh, where's like, where's the structure? Um, (laughs) but it's, it actually feels like a beautiful prep for me. It was like galvanizing because it does prepare you for the writer's life where you, you are creating your own structure. Um, so for the teaching practicum, you can, you design and implement your own teaching and, and you, people, did all kinds of things. Like one student did a writing class um, in her parents' retirement community and um, taught a series of classes in like story gathering and then adapting their personal stories into, into short plays. Um, for example, I, I was able to do my teaching practicum at the, as part of the MFA program that my, that pig iron theater company runs um, where I 
do, they don't have a lot of emphasis on the written word in that program. So I was leading classes in writing on your feet and then also giving them structures for how they might do some, some writing on their own and then, and then bring it into the room as instigation. Um, so it's a very, um, it's a very broad range of things that, that you can teach um, does have to be related to writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it should, it, it doesn't have to be related to your genre, but it's, you know, it, for obvious reasons, it's helpful for you to get that experience. And you have to design the curriculum and you have observers come in and write about your teaching. And there's a lot of writing that's associated with that as a record of that experience. And then you have to write a teaching paper where you, yeah, you write about your, your experience um, through, throughout the whole teaching process and, and what, what, what was of value for you. Well, it's a great opportunity, I think, for anyone who needs to do a low res program, but would also like to get teaching experience. Cause I, I'm not sure that I've really heard of any other low res program that has kind of a built-in system for getting the students some teaching experience. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously because it's low res, you, you end up doing that teaching wherever you are. And, um, and they're pretty great about like, you know, if it's four students who meet in a coffee shop, it's just, they're just like flexible about what people, what people can do. Yeah. Which is cool. Well, in most MFA programs where you're in person, students are teaching and they're getting some funding related to that. That's one thing that I couldn't really find on the Goddard website was whether there are any opportunities for funding, any fellowships, scholarships, things like that. Do you know anything about that? There are. Yes, there are. There are um, scholarships and there are um, awards. Um, so the the Engaged Artists Award came with a little bit of um, financial support to offset the cost. But yes, there are there are um opportunities for scholarships. And are those the kind of scholarships that you would apply to each year? Is that something that everyone who applies is considered for those? If you're interested in pursuing financial aid, that's a part, that's something that you do um, when you're going through the application process. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word on your experience. What is one way in which the MFA has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? Well, I certainly expected that I was going to spend some time in Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then um, when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, I was delightfully surprised by um, how connected I still ended up feeling to the other, the other folks in the program. I think there's a shared ethos um, in the program. That's, that's really special. And I, I feel really lucky to be a part of that community. Well, I feel lucky to have had the chance to chat with you today. Thanks for stopping by. And um, I can't wait to see some of your plays in the future and read more of your work. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.